Hello, I'm Julie Bindle, and this week I'm speaking with the author and journalist and feminist campaigner, Louise Perry, who is author of a new-ish book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, which, along with other feminists and social conservatives, is a critique of what happened in the 1960s when men's sexual access, as I would argue, and also, as Louise would argue, overtook sexual pleasure for women and the rights of women. Okay, so you think that sounds controversial? Does that sound bonkers to you? Because surely the sexual revolution was a good thing. It brought us the contraceptive pill and freedom and liberation for women, sexually heterosexual women. Hmm, no, that's not all it was cracked up to be. But I disagree fundamentally with Louise on a number of issues. Not about the problems that women have with men's sexual violence and entitlement, but more about the solutions, more about what she says would help, would free women from the tyranny of patriarchy. Have a listen. So I wanted to ask you first of all, Louise, about the way that you have discussed issues such as monogamy. And the reason why I want to ask you is because I think that we come at this from different positions, but we've ended up in the same place, which is one of my favourite ways of discussing things that we might not necessarily agree on. So when I was a young lesbian feminist in the 1980s, non-monogamy amongst lesbian feminists was really popular. And it was popular. Now that I look back, I can see why. Because a lot of these women had come from the left and a lot had come from the very alternative left, the hippie left, if you like. All of that, which of course led up to the sexual revolution, our favourite topic. And <laughs> what, what happened was we were told by the kind of feminist elders that monogamy was a patriarchal concept. And it had proven to be very bad for women in heterosexual relationships. And therefore, because we were lesbians, shouldn't we be doing something different? And so as a kind of 19, 20, 21 year old, I tried this. And it was a disaster. And I so wanted it to work. And we were very open about relationships we were having with other women. But I felt deeply uncomfortable with it. Now, at the same time, I saw that some heterosexual women were also doing that in their relationships. And equally, it was a disaster, even though everybody was trying. So start me off with your premise about why this can't work for humans. I should say that historically, um, polygyny, so when you've got one bloke and multiple women has been a very uh, stable system. It's, it's, it's permitted in, I think, about 80% of cultures on the anthropological record, um, and it's also very common among our primate, close to primate relatives. Um, that's, of course, not to say that it's stable, is not to say that it's good for women, right? And there are lots of things that are associated with polygyny, which are really bad news for women. There's higher rates of domestic abuse, for instance. There's higher rates of child abuse. 
there's higher rates of crime. There are all sorts of things that come from having this sort of extreme inequality among men, which are really bad news for women and children, which is why, which is a big part of the reason why I make the argument for monogamy, that actually, if you just look at the data, if you just add up the numbers and say, which style of marriage system tends to result in better outcomes for women and children, monogamy wins the day. And you can look at that in some quite interesting ways by looking, for instance, at African societies which have um, uh, Muslim-dominated and Christian-dominated regions sitting alongside each other, so otherwise extremely similar. You can you can compare them on those kind of metrics and see that there are big differences. So so you can just be a numbers nerd about it and choose monogamy. <laughs> but it's not just about being a numbers nerd. I think it's, as you say, there is a sort of um, try as people might... People often find um, even ethical non-monogamy, so-called, where everyone's being extremely open about it and everyone's trying to treat their partners correctly and so on, invariably results in heartbreak. And if you go on to, say, polyamorous subreddits or look at Twitter or any of these places, you will immediately come across people who are having a complete nightmare with jealousy. Something that happens, which is slightly darkly funny, um, very often among straight people who try ethical non-monogamy, so-called, is that um, it will often be the blokes who suggest it, and this is a very widespread among um, women that I know who are on dating apps, that you'll have all these kind of lefty men who advertise themselves as ethical non-monogamists, i.e. they're going to shag around <laughs> while they're shagging you, right? That's what they're saying. But they'll advertise this as, you know, extremely progressive and exciting, whatever. And some women will um, will fall for it or will be up for it, um, and I've heard from an amazing number of young women who'll, who'll say that they've never actually had a, a properly monogamous relationship because all of these men are insisting on on keeping it open. And this is, yeah, it's amazingly common among these young people. But one of the things that happens with that, which is slightly funny, is it will often be the men who propose opening up a relationship and they think that this will be great because they've seen a lot of lesbian porn. And then actually what they discover is that they find it really hard to attract women on the dating market whereas their girlfriends or their wives <laughs> sort of you know the bell of the ball it's quite it's quite interesting though isn't it because it's it's kind of I suppose the way I look at it is same shit different century and it's wrapped up as progressive as they like and and progressive is a term that neither you or I use and I would hope for obvious reason but we'll get to that and it's yet again more male sex entitlement where women are left feeling grim now the reason why I brought up my experience was that as a lesbian instinctively I just couldn't kind of hack it and I don't think it was because the blueprint with which I'd grown up which was also heterosexuality but I rejected that didn't allow me to get used to it it wasn't that at all it just felt wrong and I can't quite put a political slant on that I just know that it was well, it was hard work for one thing, but it felt inauthentic. And and then decades later, and this is what I'm, I mean, I'm, re- I'm interested in all of your book and all of your theories. But there was one thing that really stood out for me, it brought up a memory of a debate I had at York University in 2015 with an academic called Catherine Hakim, who wrote The Male Sex Deficit. And her thesis is and it's a deeply deeply disturbing one as far as I'm concerned what she says is that men want more sex than women and that this has to be managed now 
you acknowledge that within your book, but I don't think you and Catherine Hakim are going to be best friends, but we can talk about that. But she, what she says is that recreational sexuality has become more important than reproductive sexuality, uh, as you've acknowledged, due largely to the contraceptive pill. And her suggestion is that it's perfectly fine for men, therefore, to exercise their right to pay for sex in order to make up the deficit. So what she said is in this debate at York University, where she was arguing for the full state legalisation of prostitution, that we need these women to mop up the mess of men's unbridled sexual desire because there are some women who are there just for that purpose and that because women who aren't prostituted don't want as much sex as those men. And I suggested to her, of course, that that means that it's rape because she just acknowledged there's a group of women who don't want as much sex as men, but men should pay them to have that sex anyway. Now, what, what, how would you tell the listener? How would you describe the difference in Hakim's thesis about men, as you would argue, uh, wanting, desiring more sex than do women in the main, and, and Hakim's? What's the difference? I think men should keep it in their pants. That's the difference. I mean, yeah. So I call this the. Um, it's it's partly that men do have higher sex drives than women. That that there is that gap. It's also that men want more casual sex than women. So even some men who are, you know, we know that a lot of sex buyers, for instance, are actually married or have long term girlfriends, and it's so it's not actually that they're like sex deprived. It's that they want sexual variety, and this is a this this is something that really seems to drive some men in a way that is very very rare among women. It's rare to find women who are sort of driven to have constant sexual variety and adventure um whereas that is moderately common among men um my view is and this is uh, i guess the point where um hakim and i would 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 diverge is that it's uh much worse to have unwanted sex than to be sexually frustrated basically these men are welcome to masturbate <laughs> you know they I'm, I'm not denying the orgasms, but I am saying that, no, you can't have access to the orifices of women who don't want to have sex with you. Absolutely, which is what Fiona Broadfoot, who's a sex trade survivor, I'm sure you've heard of her, um, who says to men when they say, what do we do when we want sex? And suggesting even that they will have to, some of them have even said, we will have to go out and rape a real woman. Oh. I mean, it's not us that say that all men are potential rapists. It's not Andrea Dawkin. Mm. It's actually the men that pay for sex. Mm. But when, when they say this, Fiona Broadfoot and other sex trade survivors say, it's what your right hand is for. <laughs> yeah. Which is effectively what you say. But t- yeah. tell me what you think, Louise, about the, the issue to do with motherhood and the kind of the way that the feminist discussion on motherhood has evolved over the decades because I can't think of one woman who has politicized issues of motherhood as I would argue you do you speak about motherhood in on a political spectrum as a as a feminist I can't think of one satisfied reader of feminist theory on this is it that feminists have failed to 
unpick motherhood and we've kind of left it as almost an embarrassing consequence of women's reproductive cycles. I think that motherhood is really, really hard to combine with um, liberalism, which is the dominant political idea of our era, going back, you know, much further than the 1960s. Because liberalism is all about um, maximising the freedom of the individual, as long as you're not, you know, the, the John Stuart Mill thing, as long as you're not um, impinging on anyone else's freedom, you can basically do what you like. And there is a lot of... there's. There's a lot of good in that idea, you know, if you think of it in contrast to um, dominant ideologies of previous eras. You can see why it's so appealing, you can see why it has, it has produced some extremely successful societies on a lot of metrics. Um, and I, I, don't, I, I don't have an argument necessarily with, the, the, um, with many of the core ideas with liberalism. But it is really hard to combine with any idea of dependency, which is basically what motherhood is you know little babies the, the the phrase i i borrow from donald winnicott is um there's no such thing as a baby there's only a baby and someone because babies can't survive without at least one devoted adult and that will um has to be the mother at certain points and often will be the mother throughout their lives and that and mothers need to be supported by other people because you have periods during your pregnancy and and the postpartum period where you can't work you can't do anything. He said, you know, like just breastfeeding. I, I calculated at one point when my um, son was newborn that I was spending 40 hours a week just breastfeeding. Right, I was doing a full-time job <laughs> just doing that. And that wasn't with all, all the other stuff. You know, it's just completely unfeasible to think that women can operate as independent agents in that kind of space. Even if you've got formula, even if you've got all the kind of labour-saving things, you've still got that really strong emotional attachment, which is just really, really hard to... Um, you know, my um, my friend who had a baby not long after me, she said that the only thing that will limit your freedom more than having a baby is going to prison, which I think is true. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. Um, and yet, you know, m most women will become mothers. It's still about 80%-ish of British women. And um, we can, you know, we can discuss the numbers. It's hard to know exactly. But it seems as if most women also really want to become mothers. <clears throat> And will and many will express a sort of deep, deep yearning to become mothers and, and deep dissatisfaction if they don't. So this is something that we, you know, one, we should be interested in what women want to do, right? And we should be saying women want to be mothers and we should be making, we should be kind of moulding our feminist theory around that fact rather than trying to, trying to pretend the sky isn't blue. And the other thing is that, you know, if people don't have children, then that's the end. That's that's <laughs> that civilization gone within a century. I said this actually when I went on the female dating strategy podcast. I don't know if you if you're familiar with female dating strategy. You might quite like it. I'll send you. I'll send you the link. It's a it's a it's a it's a very um um very interesting feminist subreddit all about kind of women giving tips on how to manage relationships with men. It's really interesting, um, and they're quite um there was some of the women in FTS are quite cynical about motherhood and, and about relationships with men in general and I said well look if we don't keep having children then then that's it you know that's the end of the human species and I said well that's fine we'll have a hundred years of matriarchy and we'll go out on a high there's never been a matriarchy <laughs> I mean this is what <laughs> I know I remember me I remember reading Margaret Mead when I was a young feminist and we had a huge influence coming over from the US of course all things bad and and some of those women were arguing that there was 
matriarchal societies in out there places. In other words, places where at the time, we probably could now, at the time we couldn't possibly get to. I seem to remember lots of discussion about tiny islands off the Philippines. And it was it was actually quite racist. I mean, it was very dodgy in the sense that these were white women who were kind of flirting with anthropology and suggesting that patriarchy um, was a Western concept, which... All the noble savage stuff. Oh, yeah. oh completely. And it was mm. really irritating um, at the time, and it's even more irritating now. And we know there's never been a matriarchy. Um, and we actually, probably as feminists, we don't think that that's the solution. And this is the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about. Both you and I would say, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, equality is a mistake. We can't possibly strive for equality. It would be a disaster for women. If we, in my view, suddenly were given equality, 50-50 in Parliament, we could have access to the jobs and the opportunities that men have. We'd end up having to do those things and we'd be stymied because we wouldn't have the infrastructure to cope with that in our lives. But also, 50-50 in Parliament, you've got 50% men, 50% women. Who'd shout the loudest? Who'd be heard? Would that end male violence? Would that end unwanted pregnancy and the like? And this is where I know we agree, but I don't know whether we would agree on the consequences because you would maybe say restraint would be a solution to male violence. And I would say something different. So tell me what you think about the equality uh, project from liberal feminism. So, yeah, I agree. I mean, men and women are really fundamentally different. So the idea of just treating us in exactly the same way and all will come right, I think is unrealistic. I mean, just basic stuff. Women are smaller than weaker than men. We're more vulnerable to violence than men are. We bear children... Um, all of this, as we know, is <laughs> extremely... Uh, well, you know, not so much nowadays, but has has at times and in certain places been very difficult to say. Um, but uh, ask any, I think, of the 7.8 billion people in the world and 99% of them will tell you, yes, men and women are profoundly different and that obviously has important, con- important consequences. Um, so your your politics has to start from there and just saying, I don't know, that male and female workers should be treated in exactly the same way is invariably going to end up um, disadvantaging women because actually women need special provision. You know, pregnant women cannot work in the same way that that men can. Yeah, and which is why I think it's an absolute disaster to think about parenting in a way that suggests, for example, paternity leave should be automatically given to men in relationships with women who are pregnant, and then who give birth. Because I've seen some absolute disasters coming from that, where rights and and time to bond with their own child has been taken away by men who behave as badly, as badly behaved men do, despite having a new baby. Yeah, it's bonkers to think that... You, I mean, yeah, I don't think anything will disabuse you of any sort of lingering liberal ideas about absolute gender sameness as much as having a baby and realising actually the the profound differences, including psychological differences, actually, because one of the things that pregnancy does is it um, it, it, it changes your brain irreversibly and it makes you um, 
uh, completely mental um, <laughs> but but in service of your baby you know you're completely obsessed with your baby it was something actually that um, I remember having a phone call with Sarah Dighton a few it was literally a few days before I gave birth and I was asking for her tips because she had um, her children quite young and she said um, you behave in a way after you've had a baby that would be diagnosed as OCD in any other context but it's just normal <laughs> when you've got a baby. So, you know, the, the effect on the brain is amazing. And it happens, it does happen to men too. And we know, for instance, things like testosterone levels drop when men are looking after children. Um, and men can learn to, to, do, to do care work well, you know. But it's not the same instinctive, immediate thing that you have when um, you're actually the mother. This is one of the objections on a slightly different topic. But um, on surrogacy, which I know you and I are also in agreement on, um, it's one of the things I just think is so barbaric about surrogacy that you, you, it's not just you're not just a vessel. You don't just have this baby sort of sitting in a box in your abdomen. Your whole being is changed by pregnancy. And you, when the baby comes out, you know this this woman who's 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 not just carried created the baby, is all set to train her mind and body towards caring for this little creature who then gets snatched away. One of the worst things that I've ever heard in terms of sadistic cruelty and misogynistic callousness towards women was when I was researching the surrogacy trade in India where a woman, an Indian woman of course, illiterate, couldn't read the contract that she was required to sign, let alone properly sign it, had given birth in surrogacy house where she was laying... um, in a tiny bed with nine other surrogate women waiting to give birth. She'd been instructed as to what she could eat, what she could drink, um, that she couldn't smoke, she couldn't have sex with her husband, she couldn't ride a bicycle. And she gave birth and, of course, the so-called intended parents um, had written in the contract that they wanted to hold the baby before her. She wasn't allowed to hold the baby. But because there was some issue with the female um, half of the couple who were taking the baby away and feeding the baby the surrogate mother was asked to breastfeed the baby whilst waiting for their whoever it was I think they'd ordered breast milk off the internet and I thought how utterly callous and cruel and it just struck me as something that if that doesn't tell us that this is the worst example of capitalism meets patriarchy, I don't mm, know what it is. Mm. And something that people very often say, right, about surrogacy, particularly when it's um, gestational surrogacy, so-called, so that so it's an egg donor, um, is a different person from the, from the surrogate mother. People will say, well, it's not her baby. And I think that is such a almost perfect encapsulation of um understanding reproductive process from a purely male perspective because what you're basically saying there is that the person who's playing the male type role you know the egg donor who who contributes genetic material but doesn't actually carry this baby grow this baby they are the real parent whereas the person who's playing the female type role who cares just a vessel, absolutely no claim. It's incredibly retro. I mean, by which I mean like ancient Greek level retro, you know, to think that women are basically just flower pots. Um, uh, oh, completely. And this this also, coupled with this 
biological essentialism of the obsession to have a baby that has you stamped throughout it, even if that's a fantasy. And also how insulting it is to those children um, who grow up in foster and adoption type scenarios. And I mean, I'm quite radical about um, adoption. I, I think that we probably shouldn't have adoption if we can help it. I really concur with the kind of anti-adoption movement that's driven by um, adopted um, individuals who are now adults who say the whole thing is underpinned by exploitation and a callous disregard for the child's roots and a, 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 and a, a desire to own uh, your own child. I mean, I, I think that probably goes too far, even for me. But I think it's worth looking at in terms of children and ownership and what is right for the child and what's better for the child as opposed to adults that want their own kind of tailor-made baby. But but there is, I mean, all of that we agree on. Um, there are some things that we would disagree on, but what's interesting about your work, and not just the book, but the work that I followed um, of yours throughout the years since we met a long time ago, is you're absolutely right. I very, very rarely ever disagree with you in terms of the state of the world, where we're at, um, male violence and entitlement, how we got there. The problem, of course, I have is what we then do to solve that. And that's where I think that we might we might disagree. And it's not so much about monogamous heterosexual marriage, because you acknowledge, of course, that there are lesbians and there are gay men. But one of the things that I'm really interested in is is what you say about gay men and how we can perhaps measure how men might behave if they were not, you don't use these words, I am, held back by, tamed by, restricted by women in relationships with them. And what you then would have, and you quote some really interesting statistical uh, data that's come out of, I think, health, um, health studies of, of the gay male population is it looking at gay men that's what you would get basically effectively masses of anonymous or one night stand hook up sex is that really what we're looking at that women are taming men heterosexual men in in monogamous relationships and is that the way forward well what you see in the uh, among gay men is um well, it's like slightly tongue-in-cheek, called the, the horny quartile. There's maybe about a quarter of men who really will go at it, you know, if they, if they have the opportunity. Um, then there's a, there's a group in the middle who probably have more, more partners than the average straight man, but not a lot. And then there's a group who basically are extremely monogamous and don't have lots of partners at all. So you see an enormous amount of variation. Um, which is you know revealing in its own way that actually there is a lot of variation among men in terms of um, sexual behaviour, um, and it's partly linked to age. You know, obviously young men tend to have higher sex drives and so on. But it's not just age; it's also something to do with temperament, something to do with you know drive. Um, I mean, I think it is the case that women, you know, straight men who aren't going to sexually assault women. Which is most men, right? I mean, it's it's difficult. To, <laughs> it's funny. One of the criticisms I got from some um, um, reviewers of the book was that I was painting all men as rapists, 
Whereas I, I, I very explicitly say in the book, I actually say like hashtag not all men is true in the sense that it, it really is probably about, I don't know, somewhere between 10 and 30% who might be sexually aggressive in some circumstances, but it's a minority. It, it's true. It's a minority. It, that's the good news. There's a minority of men who pay for sex. That's the good news. Yeah, and they're the same. They're basically the same populations, by the way, right? The men who pay for sex and the men who will be sexually aggressive in like you know without commodifying it is basically the same group of people um and yes it is some minority some slightly unknown minority which is of course the difficulty because you can't spot them so they walk among us and the, the problem for women particularly young women who aren't necessarily very experienced in these matters is is how do you identify them from the outside and often you can't which is which is why of course women um do all the safety work that we do and why being alone with a strange man is so frightening because you just don't know um and so some of those men are probably completely incorrigible and they need to be in prison some unknown minority we don't exactly know right but they will be sexually aggressive regardless of circumstances and they're just not safe out um some other group in the middle probably would behave better in different circumstances so for instance we know that this is this is the whole reasoning behind the nordic model that if buying sex is criminalised, there are a group of men who won't buy sex anymore. And this is why, they, and, and, that, and that therefore drops the demand, and it means you end up with fewer women coerced into prostitution to feed the supply. That's right, and I've, li- I've literally compared this to junk food, to fast food, that if you've got a fast food outlet at the end of your road, and it's easy to access, you're going to eat more junk food than if it would take you um, more time, two buses, to get to it. And I've seen this in, in the Netherlands where they had tipple zones, what they call tolerance zones, where literally men are driving past going home from work and they see women, prostituted women, on the street, readily available and think, why not? Mm. And there have been, there are places in the world and there have been areas in this country where, for instance, going to a brothel on a stag do is completely socially acceptable. And I don't think it is anymore. Even though we don't actually have the Nordic model, we, we, as you know, we obviously have a kind of complex legal regime here. But it is possible, it, clearly the case is that there are some men who, if, if it's socially acceptable to buy sex on a stag do, will do so. If it isn't socially acceptable, they won't. So they're, they're basically the group that I'm interested in. I sort of think that the incorrigible sexual aggressors, they just need to be in prison. I don't think there's anything else that we can do with them. And I'm extremely sceptical of the people who say that given enough kind of therapy in prison or whatever, that these guys will be safe. I, I really, I think they might age out of it and maybe there might be some other factors like addiction or I don't, I don't know, even that. I just think it's really unlikely that they can actually be seriously reformed. Yeah. No, I, I think I think that, uh, that therapeutic interventions, as though raping children, for example, is an illness and a condition, is absolutely crazy. And I think that unlearning men from beating up their female partners uh, to the point of near death. The idea that this they're doing it because they've learned it is absolute nonsense when we know they know it's wrong. They know that this is stigmatised and frowned upon and criminalised. And the idea that we have to unlearn them, they're not Martians, they haven't just dropped down on this planet. But what about giving the impression, which some might get from your book, that women should tame the men that are hovering around in the middle that could be a bit leery, that could go off either direction. 
might want a bit more sex than she's willing to give. Is it taming or what word would you use? I would say that it's not the responsibility of individual women, right? I would say that it's, the res- it's, the, it's within the purview of social structures. So Nordic model would be one example of that, right? And, and, I, and I do think that, um, for instance, if the, you know, what's going on at the moment, basically, with um, hookup culture is you've got this um, minority of relatively attractive men uh, often high in dark triad traits, you know, Machiavellianism, narcissism, psychopathy, overrepresented on Tinder and so on, who are basically assembling these kind of digital harems of women that they're meeting and, and not necessarily telling the women the fact that they've got other women on the go and are just behaving horribly, right? They're not necessarily sexually aggressive. Maybe a few of them are. They're just... They're just taking all that they can get, given their circumstances. I think that those... There are some men in that group who would behave better in different circumstances. If what well, I mean, the thing that I'm desperate to do with the, with the book and all this stuff is actually just give particularly to young women the permission to not go along with that nonsense. Because we know that one of the things that is so marked among women and young women in particular is this tendency to be so nice to people who treat them terribly and to just and to just be just to be doormats it's so i it, i mean and i look back at myself as a younger woman as well and i think oh my god why did you think that that would it it seems to be something within whether it's socialized innate whatever it seems to be something very strong within women to, to put to put other people's interests first and to particularly to put men's interests first and one of the things that i'm trying really hard to do is to say to women who've literally never heard this message before or so they tell me you don't have to say yes to an open relationship. You don't have to have a hookup just just to be polite. You know, like if 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 women felt more confident in defending their sexual boundaries, one of the effects, I mean it would be good for those women on an individual level. I also actually think it would be good for some of these men because at the moment they're basically like kids in a sweet shop. Just, you know, high on sugar. And actually if they were if they were obliged to behave better in order to secure relationships with women, many of them would behave better. They'd, they'd finally have incentive to. Which takes us right back to the premise of your book, The Sexual Revolution, and how it's been a disaster for women. And I agree, it was never a sexual revolution, it was a men's revolution. And I remember being at some awful poetry reading as a young feminist with a load of... Feminists that had come from the left and I'd never been involved in politics at that time. I was too young. And somebody was reading from a beat poet. And he effectively, the words of the poet was that he'd seen a woman on the side of the road being raped. And he stopped his car and he said to this man, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. My lady in the car is willing to have sex with you consensually and she came out in her hippie flowing clothes and said yes don't rape her I'll give it to you for free and that to me says it all about the so-called sexual revolution when I was in Italy on a book tour with my book in 2017 on the sex trade I did lots of mainstream tv and Italy is terrible it's a highly patriarch patriarchal religious culture 
very hypocritical when it comes to the rights of women. Women aren't allowed to speak about sexual pleasure, never mind sexual autonomy. And prostitution is rife and the normalisation of prostitution. And as I came out of a TV studio, some man had somehow got hold of my um, WhatsApp number. It must have been passed around on a website about publicity in Italy. And he left me this long rambling message, which I've kept. And it was effectively, I agree with you. It's immoral and unethical to pay women for sex because it's obvious that the payment means that she's not really up for it. I have an idea, he said. Women should volunteer. There are lots of men who are ugly. There are lots of men who are undateable. There are lots of men who are disabled, who can't get a real date. There should be a bank of female volunteers. And I laughed until I cried because I thought, you absolute idiot. You've desperately tried to find a solution which comes down to there has to somehow be a group of women that can sexually service these men. Let's just call them volunteers and keep the cash for ourselves and then our consciences are clear. So that to me is the sexual revolution. But we might disagree on contraception. I mean, I don't... I really do think that the pill is just... It, it, it's both at the same time. It's a miracle and a curse at the same time. And actually there are a lot of things that are like that. And I think anything as, as, as radical and historically important as the pill is inevitably going to have a combination of good and bad. You know, I personally am really glad that I'm able to um, space births, for instance. I don't want to be having a baby every 18 months. It would be a complete disaster for my body, you know. That's the sort of thing that I, I, I think is miraculous about reliable contraception and whatever people say about the rhythm method or whatever it's just not as good <laughs> it's just not as good and you can tell that because as soon as the pill arrives you know women start um limiting their childbearing much more effectively than back in the days when they were just counting the days from their period or doing withdrawal method or whatever these sort of nonsense people used to, used to attempt um but also it's had these amazing social ramifications as well and i don't think that we've really reckoned with them is the thing because it's not actually very long you know 60 years two generations just about is not very long to come to terms with something as radical as that in 200,000 years of, of our species history um and I think that the immediate social effect of the pill you see this you, know, you can see this in women's um accounts of being um women born in say the 40s who were um young women when the pill came on the scene will say, you know, all of a sudden I basically felt like I didn't have a reason to say no to have sex with this man because you used to be able to say no because of pregnancy, the fear of pregnancy. And then all of a sudden you end up in this position where women will basically shag a man to be polite. Yes, and, and like you say, and you say in your book that the consequences for women with pregnancy, either pregnancy that's carried to term or pregnancy that causes huge health problems or pregnancy that's terminated, there are huge consequences for women. And actually, my friend B. Campbell, the, the journalist and author, said something very interesting to me a while ago about the effects um, on some women that she spoke to of the pill, which was sexual pleasure. And of course, as feminists, doing the urgent work, as you and I are, of trying to stop male violence, often deadly male violence, we can sometimes be accused of ignoring sexual pleasure women's sexual liberation uh, but I, I actually think it's all part and um, parcel of the same thing 
You can't possibly have sexual pleasure and sexual liberation if we're dogged with sexual violence and experiencing it. But B said this to me. She said, when the pill came along, men became even less concerned about women's sexual pleasure than they were before. When there was a risk of pregnancy, there was something that is ridiculously called foreplay, which, of course, men use that term meaning before penetrative sex, which is the real sex for many men, that that was sexual pleasure for women. This is where women experienced orgasms. It's where they got to actually fumble around and experiment with, find out which bits went where and which, you know, how men's bodies were different from women's. And it was great fun. But the second that the pill came along, all of that stopped and it was just straightforward penetrative sex. Fucking, in other words. And that's something I think, you know, there's a young woman called Dora Muto, who is the, the new share height of today, where she's talking about women's disappointment with sexual pleasure within long-term heterosexual relationships. So I think that's one of the consequences as well of, of the pill, not just women's health problems and rape and sexual access for men. Mm, that's really interesting. Yeah, bits and bobs is what we used to call it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I remember saying to somebody, "What, what do you mean foreplay? You've just described lesbian sex." Yeah, I mean, obviously, you, we, we were we were trying to joke. Yeah. But you, you get my meaning. But you see, this is what I think is missing from the conversation from feminists like ourselves that are so embedded in this fight to end male violence. You've got the liberal feminists on the one hand, who aren't actually feminists because they don't have women's interests at heart. And they pander to men and talk about everything bad for women as being good, surrogacy, prostitution or the sex sex workers they call it, all kinds of other issues such as extreme trans ideology. And they do nothing but talk about sexual pleasure whilst, and I'm going to just take a wild guess here, having none whatsoever, bearing in mind that, you know, the coercion into anal sex and choking being the two key uh, activities seems to be. But then you have those of us that are so committed to ending rape, um, which is the antithesis of sexual pleasure for women, uh, being accused of not actually focusing on that at all. How do you respond when, when that criticism is levied at you? Yes, I suppose I feel as though it doesn't seem... It seems as if liberal feminists spend so much time banging on about um, women's sexual pleasure that I almost... I, I feel no need to join the chorus. I sort of feel as if... You know, women women enjoy sex. Get over it. We've sort of won that argument. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a good t-shirt. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is true that it is also a very strong argument to make against things like hookup culture, and it's something that I include in my book. Things like the proportion of women who orgasm on on a first date is so low. <laughs> the, the the fact that things like um, there's some data to suggest that things like cunnilingus has become less. As I mean, as you're saying, maybe it's in keeping with the demise of bits and bobs, um, has become less popular in the in the porn age. Um, while of course things like anal sex have gone up, and we know that women tend to find that um, painful and not pleasurable and degrading and all of this, so th- that you you can make a very sex positive case against sex positive positivism. You know what I mean? Given that, I mean, so I know obviously in theory what sex positive feminism is supposed to be about is about you know genuinely promoting women's uh, sexual freedom, 
genuinely opposing rape and so on. I know that that's a theory, but we know that in practice that's actually not what it is. What it does, what it instead tends to do is basically protect male sexual entitlement and tell women that anything, basically anything sexy is good. And it, and it, and it has proved really depressingly easy to persuade particularly loads of young women to go along with this because I think basically young women are super anxious about being attracted to men and sex positive feminism is extremely unthreatening you know one of the things that one of the other things that we share despite having different views on things like marriage is um we're really profoundly threatening (laughs) to the playboys right (laughs) yeah yes like in slightly different ways but they they don't like they don't like hearing it I absolutely loved the opening of your book where, you know, we saw Marilyn Monroe um, in her miserable, short life full of abuse, addiction and violence. And then, of course, we saw Hefner. Mm. I'm sorry, I've, I've got that right, haven't I? There's so many scumbags. There's like, yes, yes it was Hefner. Hefner. Yeah. So we saw Hefner, who, when he died, I, I just... I, I really, really would have danced on his grave had I been anywhere near the vicinity. And yes, you could see the absolute misery of his life in his later years. You could see the misery of her life all the way through. He, of course, had made a choice and she had not. But it just, for me, spoke to that. The, the horrors of the sexual revolution as seen through the prism of patriarchy but in a sense it was quite optimistic because what it showed us is how different things can be for women and none of this is biologically determined none of this is written in the stars and women can be liberated from this and tell me one last question I want to ask you Louise if I may we've been called carceral feminists simply because we think that some men that are very dangerous to women should actually be locked away um and I personally would empty the jails of most women and probably about half of men, but we know the ones we want to keep in, in prison or send to prison would be a start. If there was a law you could introduce that wasn't off the scale, that was pretty reasonable and would fit within our criminal justice system, that would instantly improve things for women and girls. Do you know what that would be? So my first thought is the Nordic model, but that's a slightly boring answer because probably everyone listening is already persuaded on that one. I mean, the difficulty, as we know, with with prosecuting um, violence against women is partly to do with sexism within the criminal justice system. It's partly to do with the fact that there are often no witnesses and proving the absence or presence of consent when it comes to rape is quite hard. Um... And also to do with the fact that, um, quite understandably, victims often don't want to relive the worst moments of their lives in the courtroom and they don't want to go through the whole process. That's just really hard. Um, You know, something that I would love to do, this is quite modest and it just refers to um, policing, but I do also think that's, um, you know, as we know, it's a very important issue at the moment in terms of how to to get the um, bad men out of the police force. I, one of the things I came across in writing this book is the fact that there are some ways of predicting sexual violence in men, their propensity to commit sexual violence. And one of them is uh, extremely easy and cheap. It's called uh, a dark triad questionnaire. You basically just fill out a sort of inventory of, of detailing sort of your various personality traits. And it is a, a 
tried and tested way of testing whether or not someone is high in narcissism, Machiavellianism, psychopathy, which are combined with a few other things, um, predictive of sexual aggression. I cannot see why we can't deliver that test in recruitment, particularly in police, because it's obviously such a powerful role, but actually in all sorts of roles where, you know, I don't think we, t- we talk enough, for instance, about how much sexual violence is committed by doctors. It's a grim, it's a grim fact, but actually it's really surprisingly common because doctors have a lot of... And teachers. Yep, yep, yep. these are people who have access to, to children or to women in a state of undress or vulnerability or whatever. Um, I don't see why we couldn't be much cleverer about trying to filter for them at the recruitment stage because we know that they're going to try and access um, vulnerable people and unfortunately a CRB check doesn't do it because as we know we've got maybe 1% of rapes ending in a prosecution right so you're going to miss 99% of them if all you're doing is a CRB check which obviously as a as a basic measure you should do but it's basically not going to work that well I would love it if the smartest minds in psychology and sociology and so on put themselves to the task of actually trying to predict who is likely to do this stuff before they do it, rather than trying to mop up the mess afterwards, which we don't prove to be very good at doing. So it probably doesn't require legislation, it's actually a very simple policy change. Well, it probably would, because the human rights um, lawyers would be all over it. Um, they, they would say that you couldn't possibly use anything as a predictor, and they would accuse us of all kinds of issues. But let's keep that in our heads because I love the idea that what you're looking at and I agree with you 100% is primary prevention is actually stopping these men from wrecking these lives from ending lives and from creating the mess that we know that we're mopping up constantly and a really solid argument against the decriminalization of prostitution as we know and of the amnesty on rape is how much it costs society, let alone the direct victims, when we don't prevent it. So, Louise, you're an absolute star. Let's go for prevention. And thank you for all of the work that you do. And thank you for never, ever taking your eye off the ball when it comes to male violence and women who who are at the sharp end of this. Oh, same to you, Julie. <laughs> thank you so much. Hope you found that interesting. As we said, Louise Perry argues for the monogamous heterosexual marriage for women who wish to have children, tame men and live lives as free as possible from sexual violence and exploitation. I would argue differently. I see where she's coming from and I really appreciate the work that she does in highlighting male violence and the impunity with which men are treated in the criminal justice system and beyond. Until next time.